So uh, there's been a question that's kind of been ringing through our culture and even in our church, what now? Now that we've gone through this worldwide pandemic, this worldwide crisis, what now? What now for the political scene? What now for the economic scene? What now for our country? What now for our world? What now for travel? What now for sports? And I'm so happy to announce to you that the Dallas Cowboys play football tonight. Yes, I was afraid I wouldn't get to say that. Thank you. And I thought, you, I thought there would be more cheer from parents when we say we're going to have child care at the end of this month. So say that. But I'm, I'm glad to have the kids in here. That's awesome to hear them talk back to me. Finally, somebody's talking back to me in church. So if you'll teach your kids to say amen, that'd be perfect. Um, where was I? What now? Okay, yeah, so people are asking that question, what now? Well, and, and there's a lot of answers to that question that we don't know yet as we continue to progress through this thing and as things loosen up and open up and all that. We, we don't know exactly, but there's some things that we do know. We're going to continue to do what we've been doing for the last six months. That's with our online presence. We have our traditional, our Spanish, and our modern service online. We're going to continue to do that better because we realize we're not just reaching Burleson or the greater Burleson area. We're actually through the internet reaching the world having people connect in other countries and other parts of our state and other parts of our country. So that's cool. We're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep our social media presence. Uh, we're working on some podcasts. We're doing social media. We're still going to connect. Still a great way to connect with people that way and promote and to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to continue with uh, life groups and moving more people towards life groups because that's, as we have seen through this pandemic, that's been our life source to keep people connected, to care for one another, to check on one another, to continue to grow in the ways of Christ. In fact, we want to continue to add more life groups. We're asking God to raise up more life group leaders. Uh, and we are encouraging, though we will have some come back on campus on Sunday morning, but we're encouraging more life groups to begin off campus, off Sunday morning. Uh, that, that idea of one church with hundreds of locations, that's our new motto. We're gonna keep going in that direction. We're going to keep checking on one another, calling each other, uh, well-checked calls, make sure we're doing okay, be there for one another. We're going to continue to learn what it means to be a community, to be a family, to where I'm willing to give of myself that I can meet your needs. I'm putting your needs before my own, which is very biblical. So we're learning all that. And really, the, this pandemic has kind of wiped the slate clean as far as church goes. And we've learned what is important and what we need and what we don't need. In reality, we've learned we don't need a building to be the church. Now, we're grateful for it, and we're not going to sell it unless the price is right. But right now we're not. But we don't even need that. It's great that God's given us that, and we enjoy it, but we are the church. We are the church. This is not the church. We've understood that in maybe a new way through this whole pandemic. So I'm excited. I, I, I love what's happened. I've loved to see how God is moving and opening doors and mobilizing his church to be out in the community, in the streets, in the mission field. We are taking it to the streets, as it were, to be the church that God's created us to be. And so that question, what now? There are a lot of things we do know, a lot of things we're still discovering, but it's, all of it's exciting because we've learned what doesn't work. And my prayer is that we don't go back to a consumerism mentality when it comes to church. So many people choose a church or like or dislike things about a church based on their preference rather than really basically seeking the Lord, rather than being led by the Holy Spirit that, well, I, you know, this thing, I like this, this works, this doesn't work. And so it becomes very about me, right? Church can become about me if I'm not careful. 
And we've learned through this process, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's really about honoring the Father uh, and how we, how we are the church, how we live, how we converse. So I think those things have been great to see and experience. And I hope that we don't ever go back to churches about me. Because that's really the thing we battle here in the Bible buckle of the Bible belt, this idea that probably nine out of 10 people think they're Christian because they live here in Texas. And though it's close to heaven, <laughs> it's not heaven, right? So breaking that barrier, people say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You ask most people, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I go to church a couple of times a year and I do good things and I like cats, right? So there's just this weird non-making sense. <laughs> Apparently a lot of cat lovers in the room. That was, that was rough. So what now? Well, that's the same question that the disciples asked Jesus. After he appeared, after his resurrection, what now? What do we do now? So we're going to look at that this morning. Look at Acts chapter 1. I'm going to begin with verse 1. and Look at the first eight or nine verses. See how far we get. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the Acts of the Apostles. And so he's writing. This is what he writes. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So the first thing Luke does here is gives us some history. One of the reasons he does this is he is connecting his gospel, the gospel of Luke, to his writing here in Acts. It's the same author that's speaking these words. It's, all, it's also important because every good soldier knows the history. It's important that we as soldiers in the army of the Lord know the history of our faith. So every good soldier knows the history. So Luke kind of takes a minute to go back to the history to connect those two of Luke and Acts. And there's some very significant events in this passage. First of all is the sending of the witnesses, uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission. When we go to the Great Commission, usually we talk about Matthew 28, 19 and 20. As you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. So that's typically where we go in the Great Commission. This is Luke's version of that same commission of God. So we have that here. We have the receiving of the promise of the Holy Spirit here at Pentecost. And we also have the ascension of Jesus. After his resurrection, he was on the earth for 40 days. He visited with his disciples. And then before their eyes, he ascended up into heaven. And he said, I have to go up to heaven to be the right hand of my father so that the comforter may come so that I may send, which we know is the Holy Spirit to the earth. Okay. So all this is here and it's very important to know and understand these. And so the question is, who is Theophilus? He sounds like a Muppet character, right? Snuffleupagus, Theophilus, right? But it's not. This is a person. Some people believe maybe it's a group of people or an institution, an organization. But if you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Luke introduces Theophilus there, and he calls him most excellent Theophilus. The name Theophilus means loved by God. And so it seems that he is talking to a person, and he calls him most excellent, which could indicate he was a government official, most likely he was a Gentile who had converted to Christianity, or it could just have been a nice, polite greeting. And oftentimes when someone wrote a book, they would dedicate that book to someone of significance. Luke mentions Theophilus in both of his writings 
because it connects them for one thing, but it's also an identifier that this is a real person that people would recognize. So if you want to test the authenticity of what Luke is writing, if you want to test the authenticity about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can go ask Theophilus. He was there. He was someone of significance. People knew that they could trust him. So it's again, it's all a part of Luke's presentation of the truth of the reality of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is alive. And then he goes into the proof of the resurrection. This is Luke's apologetic, his defense of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. So he is defending that fact against those who would not believe that Jesus is alive for them and for us today. He says he appeared to the disciples for different times over 40 days. So we know, and he ate meals with them as we see in this passage. So he was appearing them not as a ghost, as, as a glorified, resurrected Lord. So Acts was written somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. So the very fact that Luke mentions this means that you can go back and ask those eyewitnesses. There are people still alive who were there that saw Jesus alive. In fact, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So again, Luke, Paul doing the same thing. Hey, if you don't believe me, you can go back and ask the people that were there. They saw it. They are eyewitnesses. Test their stories. Hear their testimony. There's power in an eyewitness. So this is something we, this is how we affirm the fact that Jesus is alive. People who don't believe that Jesus was alive, well, there were over 500 people that saw him alive. This is a part of our apologetic evidence that Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead. So that's, we know that, okay? That's something that we have confidence in. Then Luke mentions that he spoke about the kingdom of God. Okay, so the kingdom of God, as the disciples once asked, you know, when are you going to establish the kingdom? To the Jewish mind, the Messiah would establish the Israelite kingdom. He would make the Israelites back in power. He would put Jerusalem back on top. He would bring the Hebrew nation back into power over the Romans, over anybody that would come against them. So they thought of an earthly kingdom, and Jesus tried to explain to them that God's kingdom was different. God's kingdom was ushered into earth, into our lives through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in the kingdom. We are kingdom people in Christ. We are here to support, promote, be a part of the kingdom of God, not our kingdom, not your kingdom, God's kingdom. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, that established, began the earthly representation of the kingdom of God that lives in our hearts. It will be consummated at Jesus' second coming. So in this time, we are kingdom people living in the earthly representation of the kingdom of God on this planet, okay? And so this is where the disciples were heading, but Jesus was trying to show them that I'm talking about something different. Look at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, again, evidence that Jesus was alive, he's eating a meal with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So now we see Jesus giving some instruction. Luke gives us the history connecting the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts, and now we have some instruction that Jesus gave his disciples which translates down into our generation the same command to us. The commission that Jesus gave his disciples is the same commission that you and I have, the Great Commission. Jesus said, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know a lot of Baptists don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Makes us nervous, right? But it's important that we talk about the Holy Spirit. It's important that we have an understanding, a good theology of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit lives within you. 
He is a real person. He is a part of the Trinity. He is God. It's important that we understand that because that is the, the Spirit of God that lives within us. It is the Holy Spirit. And the role that he plays in our life is important that you understand. So Jesus said that the gift that was promised to you, that he talked about, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says God is the giver of all good things. All good things are wrapped up in Jesus. When God gave Jesus, he gave us all good things. Now, everything flows out of that. And this was another gift that God was going to send to us, the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came down. But Jesus is the gift. Now, all good things come from God, but they all point towards Jesus. They're consummated in the fact of Jesus and his reality. So Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know the Gospels, if you know your New Testament, if you know Scripture, that's an interesting statement for him to make. Because if you go back to John chapter 20, verse 22, before Jesus ascended into heaven, as he is talking to his disciples, John records this. And with that, with these statements Jesus was making, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, wait a minute. Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, but now he's telling them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. What's going on? You have to understand, this was a transitional period in the church from the old covenant to the new covenant. They received the Holy Spirit of God as Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But if you read in Luke, in Acts, they had not received the power of the Holy Spirit. They have the identifier of the Holy Spirit, but they had not received the power of the Holy Spirit yet. They were to wait there because this receiving of the power of the Holy Spirit was part of their mission that Jesus was commanding them to carry out. Some refer to this as a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I, we'll see in just a minute in Scripture that's not what this was. Okay? So look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here's Jesus unloading all this stuff to the disciples, and they still want to know about the kingdom, because <laughs> they want to know, when, when do we get to rule? When do we get to be in power? And he said, don't worry about that. That's not important for you to try to figure out. Only if the Father knows. What is important is you know your assignment, and here it is. And he begins to unfold for them that they're going to be his witnesses. Go back to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, forerunner of Christ? He's the one that baptized Jesus. He was there to tell the world that Messiah was coming. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in Matthew 3.11, I will baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, alluding to Pentecost. If you remember at Pentecost, the disciples were all together in one room. A sound like a rushing wind came into the room. Tongues of fire landed on their heads. They were able to speak in different languages so they could communicate to the different dialects that had gathered there in Jerusalem. And they went out and began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, Peter stands up before the crowd and preaches his Pentecostal sermon and 3,000 people are saved. So we see a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit here in the beginning of Acts, just as God promised, just as Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. 
So at Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit, although they'd already had the Holy Spirit within them. Again, this is a transitional period. It's not the same structure that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament where someone prays to receive Christ and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee for you, guaranteeing your salvation. The moment that you ask Jesus to be the leader and the forgiver of your life, God deposited his spirit in your life, within you. So we are all, if you are in Christ, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The word baptized means to dip or immerse. It means to be overwhelmed. It means to be washed. So the minute you come to Christ, you are washed, immersed in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, Ephesians 4. Well, before I get to that, the Old Testament, if you remember, the Holy Spirit would come and he would ascend on people for a time, for an event, for a happening. He would ascend on that person, and once that event was over, he would ascend back into heaven, or he would not be on that person. In the New Testament, it's different. When the Holy Spirit comes on a person, it's permanent. It's not temporary like the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's permanent. So when you and I receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't leave us. Even if we sin, even if we don't follow correctly, even if we make mistakes, he doesn't leave us. He is with us. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This one baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, represented in our baptism when we immerse somebody in the water, representing that old person is dead, there's a new person because of Christ, because Jesus was buried, and like Christ we were buried, our old life was buried, but like Christ we've been raised to a new life but we immerse them in water, symbolizing the immersion of the Holy Spirit on their life. Now that happened at conversion. It doesn't happen at their baptism. That's just symbolic of it. So it can be a little confusing when we talk about baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. At conversion, the Holy Spirit, we are immersed, washed with the Holy Spirit. So here's what is indicating. All Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit into the church at our conversion. Scripture does not suggest two categories of Christians. There are not the ordinary Christians, and then there's the Spirit-filled Christian. We are all filled with the Spirit, though obviously not all of us live by the Spirit. Not all of us are obedient to the Spirit. Not all of us are living in, in the supernatural way that God has designed us to live, typically because of sin, typically maybe because we're not aware of what that looks like or what that is. But we have the Holy Spirit within us. Um, so you'll hear that language a lot. Are you a Spirit-filled Christian? Yes, you are. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, you read throughout the New Testament, there are different times that the Spirit was more active in a person's life, again, for God's purposes, not the purpose of the person. But the Holy Spirit was more evident, more visible, more active, perhaps, in that person's life for God's purpose, for an event, for something significant, for Scripture, for writing the Gospels, for writing the New Testament. We see that time and time again. When I was in Dripping Springs, uh, 
there were a group of, I became really good friends with Steve Smothers, who was pastor of Dripping Springs Community Fellowship, was the charismatic church in our town. Uh, and so all the pastors, we had a great relationship. So we decided to do a joint worship service one Sunday, and we had the Methodist Church, Church of Christ, we had the Episcopal Church, we had First Baptist, I was at Sunset Canyon, we had the Community Fellowship Church. And so we're going to do this big worship service together, take communion together, it was really cool, out at the rodeo arena. It was a great, a great experience. But one of the local papers heard about it and wanted to write a story, so they invited all of us pastors to come into the room, and this writer was a part of a non-denominational charismatic church in Wimberley, and so when Steve introduced himself, community fellowship, she recognized him and said, oh, okay, I know who you are. And then it came to me, I'm Ronnie Marriott, pastor at Sunset Canyon Baptist Church. She goes, oh, are you a spirit-filled church? And I kind of looked at Steve, and he looked at me, and we kind of winked and smirked a little bit, and I said, well, I, I think the Holy Spirit shows up at our church, you know, I, I, I'm trusting that he is. But what she meant by that, have you had that second baptism? Do, do you speak in tongues? Right? So that was kind of, does your church honor speaking in tongues? Because in a, lot of, a lot of people believe that that is the evidence of a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Scripture doesn't teach that. We do see tongues spoken at the receiving of the Holy Spirit, but it's not the only evidence. It's not the main evidence of someone being, receiving, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see this kind of broken into two categories. So as Scripture teaches us that we have this filling of the Holy Spirit at conversion. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. So I brought a balloon to illustrate what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so this is your life before Christ. It's flat and yellow. Okay? Can I get an amen? <laughs> I know what that means. Um, so you ask Christ into your life. You commit your life to follow him in covenant relationship, and the Holy Spirit fills you. Mm. I need a minute. All right, so here, here's your life. You're not flat and yellow, you're big and yellow, right? So you have the Holy Spirit living within you, okay? So you have received the Holy Spirit at conversion. But there are times God is going to call you to do something beyond the ordinary, out of the daily, out of the mundane out of the normal walk with Christ, maybe, I don't know what it is, mission field, big event, supernatural, pray where somebody gets healed, all these different things that happen, right? The supernatural that we experience. And at those moments, God gives us an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, okay? So, mm. That was harder than I thought. It sounded weird, all right? So now, here's your life in those moments. God directed, not you directed. Say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit now because I want to do this. No, it's not about what you want. It's what God wants. And so you have this extra measure, this extra filling, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't diminish that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And once that event is over or God's plan is over for that filling, then you're back to a Spirit-filled Christian. Holy Spirit doesn't leave because that event is over, right? Okay, makes sense? So, wow, did that hit you? Hey, it's, it's COVID-free, I'm pretty sure. All right, so it may be a little wet, but it should be COVID-free. So that's what we see throughout the New Testament, okay? This is what happens in our life. The reason this happens 
if you look throughout Scripture, the, this filling of the Holy Spirit for supernatural events is tied to a Christian's maturity. If you are born again, born again, but you are not walking in step with the Lord, don't expect to be filled to this extra measure. If you're living in disobedience to God, don't expect that God's going to fill you with this extra measure of his spirit to do something God-sized. It is tied to our obedience. It's tied to our confession. And I hope that you know that when you confessed your sins and repented of your sins to receive Christ, it wasn't a one and done. God took care of your sin, but confession and repentance of our sin is a common part of our life because we sin all the time. But when we accept God's forgiveness of our sin, when we acknowledge his power, when we believe that he is moving, when we are spending time in his word, we are talking to him on a regular basis, we are worshiping him individually and with others, we are growing in our maturity, and what's going to happen is we're going to see a manifestation of the Spirit of God in our life in different ways that are not by the norm. We're going to see our gifts that the Spirit gives us, the Holy Spirit gives us. Every Christian has a spiritual gift, at least one, usually more, given to us by the Spirit, not our design, but His, and He uses those for the kingdom of God. That's who we are. We are kingdom people, directed by God through the Holy Spirit to do things that bring Him glory, not us. We see that extra measure. We, we feel that connection with God that's, again, it's not a daily basis necessarily, but there are times in our life we just, have you ever felt that? I just really feel the Spirit. You've heard that phrase. I really feel the Spirit of God moving in my life, convicting me, challenging me, using me. That's, that's this filling of the Holy Spirit that God talks about, that Jesus talks about. We have an increased power for ministry. We're growing in our spiritual gifts. So here's the evidence of being filled to this, this level with the Spirit of God. There's a Christ-like character that's being developed within us. There is a desire and for praise and worship of God, and we're fulfilling that desire by spending time in praise and worship. We are sharing the gospel with others. There's a desire to do this. There's a burning in our soul to do this. And there's a submitting ourselves to God. This is evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's tied to our maturing. As we grow in our faith, we're going to see that activated more in our lives. It's not based on works, but it's based on growing in Christ, right? The Bible says don't stay a baby in Christ. You need to get to some, some steak and potatoes. You're eating baby formula, right? Get off that and let's move to something solid. Well, this is a part of that develop, part of that maturity. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes living in the Spirit, living in the Holy Spirit in, in a beautiful way I think we can all relate to. He describes it as a father walking down the street holding the hand of his child. You've probably done that before, walking down the street holding the hand of the child. The, the child feels loved. The child feels safe. The child feels connected. But it's nothing to sing about. There's, there's no selfies being taken. There's nothing kind of out of the norm. It's just a normal everyday walk. But there's security and confidence in that walk. And he says, but every once in a while, the father startles you. He picks you up off the ground and he swings you by your arms and he holds you up in the air and he looks in your face. He says, I am so glad that you're mine. I love you. 
and he pulls you in close, and he hugs you, and he kisses your cheek, and then he puts you back on the ground, grabs your hand, and continues on the journey. There are moments that the Father startles us. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this quote after sharing that illustration. He says, the fuses of love, you know, electrical fuses, the fuses of love are so overloaded they, they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that we weren't thinking about at the time but pop up every now and then are gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know that you know that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved. And that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk on down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, my father loves me. My father loves me. What a great father I have. What a father, what a father. That's what it is like to be clothed with power from on high. A driving out of any doubt, of any lack of assurance, or gladness of heart, a blowing of the fuses of our hearts under the weight of God's delight in his children. Who doesn't want that? It blows our mind. It blows our fuses when we consider what it is to be loved by God. When is the last time the Father startled you? I think he's been startling us through this pandemic. Now, you may say, hey, I've been a Christian for all these years. I've never felt startled. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. doesn't mean you don't have the Holy Spirit. I think it's okay to ask the Father, would you startle me? Father, I want to be startled by you. I think all of us, if we would pay attention, realize that he has been startling us, startling us for the last seven months with his goodness, with his provision, with his presence, with his power as we've been walking this crazy journey we've been on. But what we have to understand is we live in the supernatural realm. Our God is a supernatural God. His kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. That's why we don't have anything to fear. That's why the gates of hell can't even stand against the church. Because all that you are involved in right now as a Christ follower is God-sized, supernatural, beyond your ability stuff. And God is seeking, roaming, looking, asking for his people to be engaged in what he's doing. He has invited us. He's taken away all that we hold secure. He's rocked our world that he might get our attention. Say, this is the life I have for you. I've asked you to come and die. Not come and be comfortable not come and build your kingdom, not come and seek your desires, but die to yourself that you might live to me. This is the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And the way that this fits into this whole church-deployed idea is this is a movement of God to re-engage his church as he first established back in Acts that you are not to be a come-and-see church, you are a go-and-tell church. 
You are to go to your street, go to the neighborhood, go to school, go to business, and represent Christ and tell people that there is a God who loves them, a Father who wants to startle them, who wants to walk every day holding their hands so they can be safe and secure, but from time to time wants to pick them up and startle them. Father, startle us again. So here's the deal. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. You are the witnesses that I died on a cross, I was buried for three days, and God raised me from the dead. You are witnesses that eternal life is possible through Jesus Christ. Now go to Jerusalem, that's where they were, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Let's start with Jerusalem. Let's start with your street. I am asking you to let your house be the church on your block. What what Jesus is saying to me, Ronnie, you are my witness on Crown Court. So I'm going to say that statement. You are my witnesses on, and I want you to yell your street out. It's okay to yell in church, right? Jesus said, you are my witnesses on? You are my witnesses on? I can't hear you, soldiers. You are my witnesses on? Yes. Let's start there. So here's the challenge. I want you within the next two weeks to make sure you know the first and last name of every person living in the three houses to your left and the three houses to the right on your street. Or if you're in an apartment, figure it out, right? If you don't have people, oh good, I, good, I have empty lots. No, you, no, no. Find people around you, through, cross the street, whatever. If you live on a ranch, you, cows and donkeys don't, don't count, right? You need to know the first and last, name, last names of the people who live on your street, live three houses next to you, whatever that looks like. Okay? Let's just start by being good neighbors. Let's just let's establish the church on your block by getting to know the people on your block. Maybe that means taking some cookies, uh, hand sanitizer, and don't come up and say, oh, well, you don't know who I live next to. Yeah, and maybe there's a barrier. Maybe that person is terrible. Maybe they've treated you horribly. Ask God to soften their heart. This is your mission for the next two weeks, just to get to know. I've lived there 10 years, and I I, I feel embarrassed that I don't know their name. Well, they probably don't know yours either, so it's okay. Then do something nice for them. In fact, say, hey, we're starting a neighborhood watch. We just want to get everybody's name and number so if there's a mercy, we can call. I mean, just be creative. Just get to know them. That's step number one. We can do that. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have called the church to be deployed. We come here on Sunday to gather together, to encourage, to pray for one another, to worship you together in community, to get our marching orders to go back out to the streets. Father, I pray that we never, I pray that First Baptist never becomes comfortable again. I pray that you would break our heart for what breaks yours. And we know that the people who do not believe in you, have not trusted in your son, that breaks your heart. And the truth is, they're all around us. 
They live in the houses to the left and to the right. They live in the houses across the street. Some of them live in our house. And God, we believe that you have commissioned us to make Burleson a better place to live for everyone. And that happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have given us power through your Holy Spirit. We don't have to ask for power. You have baptized us in your Holy Spirit. We don't have to ask for the Spirit to come. What we're asking you is to fill us with your Spirit. Fill us to the brim. Fill us to overflowing. That those around us may be drawn to you and that your name would be glorified. And I pray this in the name that is above all names. I pray this in the name that is all-powerful, that is all-knowing, that is ever-present, the name Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.